So then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're continuing to look at 1 Corinthians, and as my computer comes up, hopefully you can see that I added it late. My wife very wisely told me that I just kind of briefly mentioned what page it's on in our pew Bibles. So now it's up in the corner, so hopefully you can see that. So please join me on page 1213 of the pew Bibles, you know, the the black books in the backs of the pews, as we continue to look at 1 Corinthians, looking specifically at chapter 5, which we read already, and 6 and 7. When we opened last week looking at, verse, at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul was really emphasizing this concept of unity, especially as the people in Corinth were divided and struggling among one another uh, saying something about their, their teachers. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this guy, I follow that guy. And I was informed last week that I was a little bit confusing with some of these things, so I apologize for that. In unity, as we strive for these things, we are seeking to call all people to repentance. For all people to, to change this walk of life from straying away from God to coming back to God. So that we all might unite as brothers and sisters in Christ. We look to uh, the book of Acts where we hear how God calls all people to repentance and to belief. That God is at work in the hearts of all people. And I really want to emphasize that. That it's, it's the people where God is at work working in the hearts of even those who don't know him yet. He is calling, he is calling, and he is calling. But the other part where I, th I think I was a little bit confusing was talking about our other church bodies, saying that maybe even for the sake of unity we should ignore some of the differences. And that's, that is not at all what I was trying to say. So I apologize if I was confusing. What I really want to emphasize is how important unity is in the church and that we cannot give up what makes us the church. We cannot give up that we believe and confess and know Christ crucified and risen from the dead for our salvation. We cannot give that up. But we also cannot give up the various means of grace which God has revealed to us in his very word, knowing the importance and beauty of baptism, joining together in the Lord's Supper, confessing and receiving forgiveness of our sins. But what's interesting, actually, is it actually kind of works out as we transition into this next section. Because the problem of unity that the people in Corinth were dealing with is they were allowing sins to happen. They were allowing sins to exist. We must remember that we cannot, for the sake of unity, give up what we believe, teach, and confess. And that's exactly what's happening as we look at chapter 5. We hear of this <laughs> strange, rather strange situation that's happening in, in Corinth where a man has taken his father's mother, or father, oof, father's wife. So this is his stepmother. And this man has now taken her as his lover. And you can, you can almost hear an audible gasp from God's word as Paul talks about this. We read in verse 1 that this is not even tolerated among the pagans. I read in one of my commentaries that this, this is immoral according to even Roman law. So this is like one of the strangest things that could be happening. 
And while Paul is adamant about this sexual immorality, he actually turns to focus more on their pride. They're proud of it. They're proud that they're allowing this to happen. And there's, it's almost as if they're, they're going to the world and they're saying, hey, look at us. Look at how good we are. Look at how loving and open and accepting we are. That's a problem that we still hear in our world today. Where we give up what we know to be true so that people think that we look better, right? And so how does Paul start addressing this? Well, Paul uses some confusing language. He talks about leaven and unleavened bread. And I'll be honest, I didn't really know what leaven was. And I asked my people at the 530 uh, service last night, and leaven is the same as yeast. So when you have all of your mixture together making bread, you add your yeast to the bread, and it causes all those chemicals to bubble, boil, and form a nice, wonderful loaf, which you can then throw in the oven and have some great bread. I have to admit, I don't think I've ever made bread, you know. This image doesn't really work super well for, uh, for most of us uh, because most of us just get our bread at Hy-Vee or Fairway or something like that, right? But Paul is using this image that's going to be common to these people. They're going to have some sort of a background in the Old Testament. So they're going to recall this, all these examples of the unleavened bread of the Passover lamb, which Paul mentions here in chapter 5, talking about how in Exodus they are told to remove the leaven from their bread. Now, as Paul is using this common image, he's actually using it, and again, Nancy, thanks, she usually does a better job than I do with these images. That little bit of leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. It's interesting reading this. I've never really wanted to be a lump before. I've been many times, but I've never thought that I would want to be. And here, what, what Paul is saying is that you have to get this old leaven out and allow the new bread to be different and separate. And so this is all coming back to the, one of the biggest and most important points of our salvation, which is the removal of sin. See, Christ has come. He has died. He is risen for the sake of us to be free from sin. This is what God has done. And so Paul is saying, you guys know this. Why are you allowing it to happen? God has made you new people. He has made you a new loaf of bread without this old leaven, with this new leaven, with this new yeast that's going to create something much, much better and, and tastier as we kind of go with that image. You know, as we kind of look at this, I was thinking about it that we need to be made new. We need a new humanity. And that's part of the work of Christ because before Christ, we simply exist in a state of sin. Before God, we are unjustified, we are unworthy, we can't even stand before him. And so when we look to books like Isaiah, when we hear of Isaiah's call, Isaiah is terrified because he stands, stands before God saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips. And he's going, oh no, I'm going to die. Because of the absolute terror that the sinner has before the Lord. But before, but through all of this, God works to create a new humanity, a new creation. And while this is a future reality, we get to experience this 
a little bit right now. As we turn to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 3, you probably remember the great phrase, or great phrase, <laughs> the great verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son from John 3.16. But in the context of this chapter, Jesus is meeting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. They're meeting in night and in darkness, and they're, they're having a deep conversation as Nicodemus is What's wonderful is Nicodemus isn't pressing him to see whether he is the Christ. He's legitimately asking good questions. What does somebody have to do to be saved? And Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus thinks, well, that's, that sounds a little bit ridiculous. How am I supposed to enter for a second time into the womb and be born again? To which Jesus then turns and says that... One is reborn through the water and through the Spirit, which immediately our minds jump to holy baptism. This is where we become new people. As it's explained in, uh, in Paul's letters, as it's explained by Luther, we look at the waters of baptism and sees, see that the old humanity is drowned and dies and the new humanity rises out of the waters. That we are reborn through these things. And bringing it back to Corinthians, we know that through Paul they have received the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I would think to, I think it'd be safe to assume in the context of what we know about these Corinthians is that most of them are probably baptized. And so Paul is saying, come on, this is who you are. Live that life, be those people. Because as we look further in chapter 6 and 7, we see that they are not being those people. They are not being redeemed. They are not being reborn. They are following the ways of the world. They're going after the, the culture in this Greco-Roman context as the Hellenistic Greeks and all of that history and now the Romans coming in, all of that history, who allow these sorts of sexual sins to prevail as Paul specifically focuses on the sexual immorality. The ph philosophy that's prevailing at the time is from one named Demosthenes, who says that we have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body's needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. This is how the women in this context are viewed. You are there for my sexual desires and no more. This is disgusting. And this is what Paul is calling them out and saying, is this really who you want to be? Is this the, the new humanity that you have been made? Is this really what you want? He continually asks, do you not know? Of course, heavily implying and really laying down the law that yes, you do know. You know better. You know better. You, you should not be behaving like this because you are worried about this life. You are worried about this life and not the coming life. Not the new creation that you have already been made into and will experience even more fully in the resurrection of all people. You are failing to live in grace and live in peace. You are failing to live as those people that Christ has redeemed you to be. 
So Paul's question for them is basically, how are you being perceived by the outsider? That's how these three chapters are very relevant to us. It's not just the sexual immorality that, which is relevant to us. We all must flee from it and be aware of it. But even more so, Paul is saying, how are you being perceived by the people outside the church? And I kind of skipped over chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, Paul, it's more, correct, it's more instruction as opposed to correction. Not that it's irrelevant. But it still focuses on that question of how do you look to the outsider. As uh, Paul talks about um, being married, getting divorced, what a mixed marriage between a believer and a non-believer should look like. Things like that. But taking this question into our hearts and reflecting on these passages, how do we look to the outsiders? As we reflect again on unity together as brothers and sisters, that's that same question that we had last week. Are we getting caught up in, in petty squabbles and bickering over meaningless things? Because the thing is, is as, as people come in curious about what we are doing in this church, they'll see those things. Even things that we might not even think about anymore. That two people who always just hate each other, who never sit by each other, who always shoot dirty looks to each other, everybody else in this church has just kind of ignored it. That's how they are. But a person from the outside will come in and notice that immediately. Well, almost immediately. But also just looking at a, a grander context Looking at how Christians are perceived by the world, it's really heartbreaking. We all get lumped together in that group of the evangelicals. And that's now becoming a dirty word, it seems, as you read articles online. That the evangelicals are doing this and that, when the evangelicals are supposed to be, as that name implies, the ones who preach the gospel, who bring that good news. One of the ones that I hear all the time that I really hate to hear is how many waiters and waitresses hate the Sunday after church slot because of Christians who leave church, who go to the restaurants, and who are just rude, who tip poorly. Is that what we want to be known for? Or all those articles that we're reading nowadays of Christians involved in politics where they're doing this or that? And Christians just simply come out of these articles looking combative and rude. Is that how we want to be seen and perceived? So what do we do? Well, Paul's advice is not only to just stay away from it, but to flee from it. Get it away from you. That little leaven is going to leaven the entire lump. So get rid of it. Get it far away so that it's not going to ruin the whole loaf because a little sin allowed to exist is going to corrupt our entire congregation. But Paul also reminds them that things are very different from them. At the end of chapter 6, we read that you were bought with a price. And the very high price of Christ, God's only Son, who came to this world to suffer and die for us, to pay that price. It was a high price. And so because of that, Paul reminds them that you do not belong to yourself. You were purchased back from sin to belong to God. So you 
need to glorify God in your body. More than that, you are a part of this new creation already. That your body has now been made into a temple. A place where the Holy Spirit itself resides. And now you as a temple are there to glorify God. Well, so practically, how does that happen? Well, it begins by cleansing these temples from sin. When I think of cleansing the temple, I always think of Jesus who cleanses the temple, who runs in and starts flipping tables, makes a whip, and starts whipping people. And it's a, it's a strange image because this loving Jesus is now acting quite violently. But this is how serious he is about corruption in his temple. Even more so how serious he is about corruption in these temples that he would take our place on the cross. So how do we then practically cleanse these temples? Because we struggle with sin. We're in a world of sin. And so how do we make sure to be prepared? Well, we already began. We've already started it this morning. As we join together on page two, we, or excuse me, yeah, page two, we confessed our sins to God before one another. We went before God and said that we are by nature sinful and unclean, sinning against God in thought, word, and deed, sinning against our neighbor as we ignore them or do something actively to harm them. We have begun to cleanse these temples by simply saying to God that we are broken and we need you to fix us. But then also, there are other ways. Receiving baptism begins our journey on that, but while we don't baptize more than once, we have a lot of symbols and ways that we remind ourselves that we are baptized. We don't have one in this church, but in some churches you'll see a baptismal font with water always in it, where people touch the water, and that is to remember that they are baptized. And of course, we're not offering it this morning, but by receiving the Lord's Supper, as another place to cleanse this temple as we are forgiven of our sins, strengthened and renewed in our faith, and as we unite with one another. But then also, hearing God's word cleanses these temples. As we gather together, not just in church to, to hear God's word preached and read, but also in our own personal lives as we go together in corporate or personal Bible studies. As we join together to see who God calls us to be and then moves us to continually keep these temples clean. And you must remember that a temple is not built to just look good. As beautiful as our church is, as beautiful as the cathedral just down the street is, these places have not been constructed just to look pretty. But they are here for practical purposes. And you have been redeemed not just to be better, but to be better for God's purposes. And this is accomplished through our public lives. As Paul is speaking in these chapters to the people in Corinth, he's saying, how are you being seen by everyone else? Because the other part that I gloss over, apologies, is at the beginning of chapter 6, they're suing each other. They're getting caught up in these squabbles, and then they're just throwing each other to the courts. Paul is saying that you must seek unity as brothers and sisters fleeing from sins, especially the sexual ones, to live well as single people, as married people, because how you are perceived by the outsiders is very important. 
And honestly, I, I agree with that so much because I think one of the best ways that we proclaim the gospel and the new life that we have is by how we are living it. How we are embodying God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. Of course, we are not on the same level as Christ, but as Luther has put it, that we live as little Christs in people's lives. So when you come to worship, as you have this morning, as I hope you will next weekend, consider your temple. Is it clean? Is it pure? And I'm not just talking about did you take a shower, but is there sin? Do you need to confess and receive forgiveness? Absolutely you do, because we all do. And so then we confess and you have called me to be your shepherd to pronounce that same forgiveness that God has already given you. To constantly remind you of how forgiven you are. But then we also gather together to receive Holy Communion for the forgiveness of our sins, for the strengthening of our faith. We get to participate together in God's word, especially in, in Bible studies where we participate more together. But then as we live in joy and in grace outside, as we love our neighbors... Through you, through me, through many people, God has decided to work. Rather than getting rid of his shed, he has decided to fix all of the broken tools. We are those broken tools that have been repaired by God, that have been made a new people. And he has decided to use us to further his kingdom. As he partners with us to do that. That's astounding. That he would choose someone like me... To do these things it always just blows me away. When I, I, in my sin, should be cast aside, he has brought me in to himself so that he can work through me. And it's the same story for all of you. So now we joyfully join with him in that as we represent our God and our new creation to this world around us. Amen? Amen.